Our second reading is from the book of Acts. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law is delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. The word of the Lord. Injustice and suffering. Let's take injustice and suffering at the lower level to start off with. How do you respond if you hear somebody talking badly about you, rumors? How do you feel when somebody is falsely accusing you? Or how do you feel when you've been betrayed by a friend, by a spouse? For me, when somebody is what I perceive of falsely accusing me or I hear rumors about what they're saying, they think that I say or believe or I'm like, I want a chance to explain. I basically want a chance to set the record straight. I want, them, I want to help them to know me, to really understand the issue, because clearly they don't, and I, I want them to know why they're wrong. And my question is this, why must we defend ourselves? Or why must we attack or get revenge on somebody who we feel like is putting us in the wrong place? Here's why, one of the reasons why I think. Um, let's say something is really important to you. Let's say your kids, like for parents out there, those of you who don't have kids, you can just pretend, right? Let's say your kids are really important to you and that, um, in fact, it's central to your self-understanding to be a good parent, that your kids are happy, that everything about them is kind of where you find your identity, your self-worth, your own happiness. 
If you find yourself falsely accused, like you hear somebody talking badly about your kids, or you hear rumors that people are questioning your parenting choices, or, or God forbid, somebody else should correct your kids and you find out about it, the problem is they are now defining you. You aren't in control of the narrative anymore. And in a sense, they're stealing or murdering your identity. And when we feel that, we get vicious. At bare minimum, we're defensive. At worst, we're murderous ourselves. And here's the deal. If your identity, and I mean your worth, where you find what you value, if your identity is stealable, then you've got to protect it at all costs. And in a sense, when we respond with either defensiveness, my favorite, or vengeance, or a desire for revenge, we're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to save and protect what matters most to us. Let's take it a step further. Suffering, not just kind of betrayal rumors. Uh, true suffering. How, how does any culture make sense of suffering? Peter Berger, a sociologist, wrote that every culture has provided an explanation of human events that bestows meaning upon the experiences of suffering and evil. Every culture, if you trace them throughout history, tries to provide meaning to suffering. Give meaning and story to say, here's why suffering happens. In Buddhism, some of the Four Noble Truths are selfish desires cause suffering. But ultimately, if you can detach yourself from desire, then you no longer have to deal with the pain of suffering. So basically, detach yourself from feeling. Don't be so worried about the death of somebody near you. It's all part of an emptiness. Then if you just detach, everything will be better. In Islam, suffering is actually identified as the result of your sin. The Quran says this, whatever misfortune befalls you is a consequence of your own deeds. But much of it he forgives. Detach, it's your own fault, or Western culture. Western culture actually has no coherent answer to the problem of suffering. And that's because we don't have any meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is sort of the story that we all buy into that explains why things are the way they are. Who we are, why we're here, the purpose and meaning of life. We don't have a coherent, singular meta-narrative. Every other culture in the history of humanity and outside of the West, North America and Europe, has had these meta-narratives, these ways of explaining the world that we're in and our place in it, except for the West today. We don't have a common narrative, a common story, and so we actually don't have clarity on our purpose or meaning, why we're even here. The basic storyline is this. Everyone is free to do what they want, become who they want, believe what they want, choose what they want, and the singular goal is your happiness. And when the singular goal is your happiness and you don't have any bigger story, you have no category for failure, no place for pain, no way to make sense of loss. Christianity, even secular philosophers will agree, has had one of the most compelling narratives regarding suffering and has been one of the reasons why people even early on in the midst of suffering attached themselves to Christianity. 
Christianity doesn't say detach from your feelings of love for your kids or your spouse or people who might die, nor does it say the reason why bad things happen is probably because of something you did. Or if you're good enough, God will protect you. Everything's going to go well. If you obey the Ten Commandments, nothing bad can happen to you. Rather, it has this basic narrative. When you suffer, you can be confident that God is still the Lord over everything. You can have hope that God is in the business of redeeming. Because ultimately, the story of Christianity is that of a God who loved us enough to enter humanity, suffer the worst of human evil, and bring about our redemption and the hope of eternal life as a result of it. It's that storyline that has driven Christianity for centuries. And it's what began in Acts 6 and 7. When the early church begins to face persecution, to face injustice, imprisonment, and even death. This morning we read the story of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr after Jesus died. He's boldly proclaiming Jesus, and he's filled with incredible peace, even as he is being killed. He even prays for God's mercy and forgiveness on the people who are killing him. How does he do that? And what does how he does it, what does it say about how we face opposition in a post-Christian culture or dealing with any injustice or suffering? Well, let's walk through the story and then get into Stephen's message and see what it says to us about how we face any injustice and suffering, let alone the greatest. So the story is this, just to catch us up on where we were. We're walking through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter four, Peter and John get thrown into prison and then they escape with warnings. We're going to do bad stuff to you if you keep preaching Jesus. And you know what they do? They keep preaching Jesus. So eventually they are arrested again and this time they are beaten and then they're released from prison, and when they get out of prison, they rejoice that they were able to suffer for the name of Jesus. And as a result of their boldness in preaching and the suffering that they went through, the gospel was going forth. It was so powerful as the Holy Spirit was moving through them to proclaim the good news of Jesus in Jerusalem just days and weeks and months after Jesus' death and resurrection that people after, person after person came to faith in Christ. And the entire city of Jerusalem was bringing people to Peter and John and the other apostles to have them healed of sicknesses because the God was moving powerfully through them at that time. As the church began to grow, they were caring for the poor and some issues came up with their care of the poor. They needed to appoint deacons, which were servants that would uh, distribute money and food to the poor and especially to widows. And in doing so, Stephen is one of the deacons who's appointed. He becomes ordained as a deacon in the way we would talk about it now. And Stephen, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begins to preach the gospel too and is performing miracles. And in the midst of doing so, a couple of synagogues begin to accuse him of speaking against the temple and the law. Now, the temple and the law were central to who Israel was and their self-understanding. There he is in Jerusalem, and they're saying, this, this Stephen is proclaiming something that is challenging the temple as the central place where God dwells, and the law of God is the way that we follow God and get to God. And so, Stephen is arrested, and the people who arrest him say, okay, Stephen, 
Are you proclaiming against the temple and against the law? And Stephen gives them a history lesson. It's an interesting history lesson. It's the longest speech recorded in Acts, one of the longest sermons recorded in the New Testament. And Stephen starts like this. He says, men of Israel, you know Abraham. How God spoke to him. The God of glory arrived and spoke to Abraham and called him to birth a people. And centuries later, they were birthed. But in the meantime, he has sons. And then God speaks and chooses Joseph, one of the grandsons, the great-grandsons of Abraham. But his brothers rejected him and sold him into slavery in Egypt. And there he suffered, persecuted for being the chosen one. But God put him in Egypt for a purpose, to provide the saving of his family. And then centuries later, there's Joseph to save his family. But centuries later, his family is enslaved by the Egyptians. And God calls another chosen one, an anointed one named Moses, to deliver Israel out of slavery. But at first, the people of Israel reject Moses, the chosen one. But God works powerfully through him, calling him through a burning bush, revealing himself as Yahweh, the holy God, come to save his people. And through Moses, he delivers Israel out of Egypt. And as they take hold of the promised land, he raises up David and then Solomon, who say, we want to build a house for you, God. But as Stephen says, a house cannot contain God, and yet God lets him, them build the temple. And then he concludes by saying, all of this was pointing to Jesus. All of this was God showing that he does not need to stay in a building. He showed up to Abraham, and he showed up in a prison to Joseph, and he showed up in the desert to, to Moses, and he says, I do not need a house, and then he shows up in the person of Jesus. And just like the whole history of Israel, every chosen one is rejected by the people. No, it's not Joseph. No, it's not Moses. No, we do not want Jesus. And he concludes with this indictment of the people of Israel in Acts chapter 7. Verses 51 to 53, he, he reads, he writes, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That's a cut down. It sounds like a Monty Python line or something. Your mother is a hamster and your father smells of elderberries. Next time you get angry, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whom you now have betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's accusing them of rejecting God as he has revealed himself in Jesus. When God chooses to reveal himself, it's actually very hard for us to accept it because we want control of how we understand who God is. Their uncircumcised hearts mean their, their heart and their mind, their desire and their mind, their will was not willing to say, okay, God, however you choose to reveal and save, that's the God I believe in. 
They are enraged and they rush at him and they drag him outside of the city gates to stone him by execution. It's a mob lynching, but it's also a formal execution. It's a kangaroo court taking him outside of the city gates, possibly to the very place that Jesus had been crucified. And as they are throwing stones at him, and this is a horrible thing, some descriptions of the, the law of stoning in the modern world involve not having stones that are too small nor stones that are too large to kill somebody in one blow. Huh. It could take a half hour or longer of just being broken. And as the mob, the angry mob, is throwing stones at him, Stephen looks up into heaven and has a vision. I see, verse 56, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And he is full of peace. And then he is able to say, in his final words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he breathed his last. And he is the first martyr full of peace and full of love. How did he face persecution and suffering and brutal injustice with such courage and peace and love? If you were here last week, the answer is redundant. It's the bigness of his God and the greatness of his gospel. The bigness of his God is this. In Stephen's view, and you see this in his sermon, in his speech that he gives, God is the Lord of all things. The Lord of all creation. God of heaven and earth. Nothing is outside of God's purposes. Think about his speech. If you go and read it, it's really long. He traces from Abraham to Joseph to Moses to the wilderness wanderings to the temple up to Jesus. And in each way that he's tracing it, it is people rejecting God again and again and sin and evil happening again and again and horrible things happening and slavery and, and yet God is working. God is working in all of these things from prison to slavery to promises that don't seem to be answered to death. God is working in these things because he is over all of history and if what happens in Jesus is any indication, even the evil intended by men cannot be outside of God's divine purposes. Stephen believes that even if he dies, God's good will come of it. <laughs> Jesus, in Acts chapter one, verse eight, he said, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? A couple weeks ago, Matt Hemsley preached on this. It's the Great Commission. I want you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Take the good news that I am crucified and risen for you to the ends of the earth. And this is probably a year to three years later based on the development of the church, maybe even longer. And guess how far the church has gone outside of Jerusalem? I'm not sure they've left the house they started in. Two to three years later, Jesus says, okay, Holy Spirit's gonna fall on you. It does, a few days later, 50 days later. And then I want you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Go, and they stay. But after Stephen is martyred, Saul leads a great persecution against the entire church, and they are scattered. Where are they scattered? All throughout the regions of Judea, 
and Samaria is what it says. And so it begins. Through the death of Stephen and the persecution of the church, the gospel begins to go out. As Christians trying to save themselves and their family have to go to other towns and they can't help but represent Christ there. And the gospel is spreading further and further. In fact, the early church spread as persecution often tried to crush it. Nero famously blamed all the Christians in Rome for his burning down the city, lit them on fire while they were alive to light his gardens, fed families to the lions, right? And the gospel continued to spread and the church continued to grow. Even as late as the third century, Diocletian, a Roman emperor, tried to crush Christianity, the atheists as he called them, with this phrase, yield or suffer. Yield or suffer. And within a century later, Christianity had covered the Roman Empire. That sort of hostility continues today. If you read any of the reports, religious persecution is still incredibly high. And it ranges from social challenges to uh, Christianity being illegal in some places to hostility to the point of death. If you go across Asia or North Africa or the Middle East in particular, it's incredibly challenging to be a believer in Christ. To come to faith in Christ means you will be completely rejected by your family, possibly thrown in prison, and maybe even die. God is over even that, somehow. We see it in particular in the description of what happens here as, as Stephen is being killed. It's the inclusion of Saul being present. And here's the interesting thing that, uh, that one preacher was speculating about, but it makes sense here. This sermon that Stephen gives, if you go read it, is one of the longest and most detailed sermons in the entire book of Acts. Much of the other sermons in the book of Acts are just a couple of little paragraphs. This one is really long, full of exquisite detail and quotations. And the way that the New Testament was often written was somebody like Luke, who wrote Acts, went around and talked to various eyewitnesses. It was the way oral history was done. And you would go to a particular eyewitness who had been in Ephesus or had been in Antioch, and they could tell you the story of the church coming there. And it seems as if Luke has an eyewitness that was present at Stephen's martyrdom who knew every single word that was said. Somehow it had been cauterized into his head. And they laid their cloaks down at the feet of a young rabbi named Saul who oversaw the killing of this Stephen. And then enraged, he went and began to persecute the church throughout Jerusalem and Judea. And on his way to carry that out even further, this Saul is struck down by the Holy Spirit and comes to faith in Christ because God calls out, why are you persecuting me? And this Saul becomes Paul, whose conscience was probably seared at that moment with the, the words of Stephen echoing in his head, the one who he had killed. Every single phrase, down to its detail, deeply embedded in his mind. And yet, this murderer, this persecutor of the church, 
becomes the most influential missionary and theologian in the history of Christianity. Nothing is outside of God's purposes. The suffering of Joseph, the rejection of Moses, Jesus' crucifixion, Stephen knows that as he's being killed. But it's not just a big, distant God you need to believe in. It's also the fact that Stephen had an awareness of the presence of God with him. He had a relationship with God because it wasn't just some distant, holy, other God over all of the universe, everything's gonna work out. That distant, holy God was actually a personal God. Through Jesus, he had a relationship with this God. And he knew God was with him because it wasn't just the bigness of his God, it was the greatness of his gospel. So at the very end of his life, Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's falsely accused. He's being brutally murdered. And as he's dying, in the face of their injustice, he has forgiveness and love for the people who are stoning him to death. How do you do that? He does it because he has a firm awareness of his standing before God. In Acts 7.56, just a few verses earlier, he, he sees up into heaven and it says, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What's interesting about this is throughout the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, Jesus, risen and ascended, is said to be seated at the right hand of God. Seated was to be on a throne. To be on a throne was to be in a place of ruling and judge. Every throne room was also a courtroom. It's where the the nation's decisions were made as the king and those sitting on the thrones decided things. But in this vision, Jesus is not sitting as judge, he's standing. And you stood for two reasons. Either you were on trial or you were defending somebody. Stephen is seeing Jesus both taking his own sin and defending his own cause before the throne. Stephen knows this. Before God, the holy God, even he is guilty of sin. But Christ took his place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Stephen knew before God, in all of his past sins, he is fully acquitted. As he faces death, he is spiritually at peace. His accusers and the the accuser have nothing against him. And he can release even his offenders. This is true for us as well. Even if you are falsely accused or betrayed or everyone turns against you, yes, it will hurt, but there's no reason to be bitter or vindictive if in the one court that matters, you know that you're acquitted. 
the gospel says this, you and I are guilty, but he took our penalty and he pleads our case. Only if you are confident, fully confident in your standing in the only court that matters, only then can you have the confidence in the court of public opinion or the court of your own conscience. Only if your righteousness is by grace can you forgive and love even your offenders. Because if it has anything to do with your goodness, then your offenders are worse than you. But if it has something to do with grace, even those who offend you are no different. Let's take it in a slightly different way, the way that the, the religious approach and the gospel approach to, let's say, a competitor or a rival. Let's say that you are really good at your job or school or you're, you're the center of your circle of friends. The religious approach says this, if somebody better than you arrives, somebody better than you at math or at sales or at making all your friends laugh, if somebody better than you arrives on the scene, what happens? You either feel very small because your identity has been shaken. You're no longer the top math kid. You're no longer the funny guy in the circle. You're no longer the top salesman. Or you get incredibly jealous and competitive and vicious, wanting to see their destruction. Why? Because your worth and identity are, are built on being the best salesman, the top math student, the, the funniest kid. We're building our identity on our own religious approach. If I do this, then I matter. If I'm in this place, then I'm okay. But the gospel approach in which you find your identity fully in Christ as a gift by grace, you find your worth fully in God's love for you, in that place you can be an excellent salesman or really good at math or a really humorous person and not be threatened by somebody who is better, funnier, more tops. <laughs> you can even appreciate them because they do not affect what matters most, your standing before God in Christ. What happens when real suffering hits? Poverty, sickness, loneliness, loss. Because of the gospel, we don't need to be bewildered, grasping wildly like our Western culture would say, your happiness is gone, there's nothing left. How in the world do you make sense of all this? You don't have to try to detach yourself from your feelings as in Eastern religions so as not to feel the sting of pain, of loss, of failure. Nor do you have to blame yourself like many religious systems. It doesn't have to be blaming God for failing you, why the bad stuff's happening to you. It doesn't have to be blaming yourself, what sin did I do to cause this? Or blaming others. That bitterness and grudge, it's their fault that this happened to me. Wishing they're ill. The gospel message is centered on a cross. The God endured the worst of sinful evil to show us the depth of his love. His suffering and death brought our redemption and resurrection. Our suffering, no matter what we deal with, cannot mean God isn't powerful and we aren't loved. The cross and the resurrection tell us otherwise. Two stories to close. 
on, in April of 2017, there were twin suicide bombings of Coptic churches in Egypt, killing 45 people on Palm Sunday of last year. In a TV report that followed a day or two later, a couple days later, there was 12 seconds of silence on TV when Amir Adib, a popular Egyptian talk show host, was completely stunned and had no words for what he had just seen. They had cut away to a reporter, one of his reporters, talking to a woman in Alexandria, Egypt, where the widow of the guard at the church who had stopped the suicide bomber from going into the church, causing the suicide bomber to blow himself up right there, destroying her husband. When she was being interviewed by this Egyptian newscaster, the wife with her children by her side said, I am not angry at the one who did this. I'm telling him, may God forgive you, and we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. Two years earlier, in February of 2015, ISIL released a video of 21 men in orange jumpsuits being beheaded on a beach. They were Coptic Christians kidnapped from doing construction in Libya and publicly executed, or at least on video. Why? Because they were following the delusion of the cross. Matthew Ayarga was not a Coptic Egyptian Christian. He was from Chad in North Africa. He was the lone black man in the video. Moments before his death, when asked to follow Islam, Ayarga refused, even though he was not a Christian. After reportedly viewing the immense faith of the Coptic Christian believers who had come from Egypt, he decided to become a follower of Christ at that very moment. Each man had been beheaded praying, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. And in their final moments before they were beheaded, that's what they were praying. On camera, one of the militants is seen to ask Iarga, do you reject Christ? And he responded boldly, their God is my God. Where do you find not only the power to respond to offense and betrayal with grace, but the courage and hope to face all suffering without fear or vindictiveness, to be able to love and forgive and even pray for your enemy? It's in the way of the cross. It is not a delusion. It is the only way to life. Rather than going to prayer right now, or even a song of response, I wanna play a video that was put together as a response to the beheadings of the 21 in North Africa a couple of years ago. It's a prayerful call to the world and to the people of ISIS that God loves them too. Can you go ahead and play that, Nathan? <laughs> 